Heavenly Father, may the words that I speak and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen. The topic is a prophetic history of Daniel for today. And we will be very relevant. But uh, the 45 verses, uh, only basically the last five speak of where we are living today. And so most people forget the rest and jump immediately at the end. You can do this, but then you should ask yourself the question, why are there so many interpretations? There's a whole pleroma of interpretations. And the reason is because the first part was not understood, and then people come to all kinds of conclusions at the very end. So that's not what we like to do, and therefore this morning we spent time on the great controversy in the past with Persia, Greece, and Rome, and those are the first 29 verses. Each verse is a prophecy by itself. So this morning, we will study 29 prophecies. This afternoon, it is from verse 30 to 45, another 15. And, uh, but you will see then at the end how important it is to understand the beginning before you can come to a conclusion for the end. Now, instead of jumping immediately in Daniel 11, you need to know some principles of interpretation. Now, for some of you who said, you know, that is, I'm not in it. If you're not in this, you will never come to a fair conclusion at the end. So you need to know and understand how Daniel and the Bible present itself. And so the first principle is a biblical, historical, or historicist method of interpretation. This is basically so that the prophecy is relevant from the time of Daniel without interruption till the very end. This is in contrast to people who are preterists who say, okay, it is only in the past, or futurist is only in the future. No, it is a continuation, a continual development. If you don't believe on this, you will never come to a conclusion, uh, right conclusion. Then the outline of Daniel 11 is to be parallel to Daniel 2, 7, and 8. It's very important. But each prophecy, Daniel 2 is in ba the bare bones, Daniel 7 a little bit more, Daniel 8 more, and Daniel 11, most extensive explanation of the same prophecies, but in a different form. So here then, Daniel 2, 7 and 8 represent the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome in symbols. But Daniel 11 presents some of the most prominent rulers of those kingdoms, literally, 
Now, you would say, you know, if you go and see it in a literal explanation, then it would be more relevant. And we hang around to all the symbols, and with the symbols you can go into many different ways. But you don't focus on the little things. Here it is. Number four. This chapter, 11, follows the Christocentric, cross-centered interpretation of Daniel 9 that determines whether we deal with literal Israel, with its literal geographical areas, or spiritual Israel with its spiritual, global, universal perspective. And so Daniel 9 is the key to the understanding of Daniel 11. If you don't understand this, you're lost. So therefore, it is very important. Daniel 9 is a key element to unravel all the prophecies there. So the great controversy with Persia and the vision of Daniel 11 starts with Daniel 10. Daniel 10 and 11 are one unit. And if you turn in your Bibles to Daniel 10, verse 12 to 14, you find then a controversy, a conflict. The angel Gabriel shares some information. Actually, when Daniel started to pray, at the beginning of his prayer, the angel Gabriel already responded. Very interesting. But he couldn't get anywhere. Why? Because the prince of Persia withstood him. And the Gabriel had to work three weeks before Daniel's prayer could be answered. And then not only Gabriel, but then Michael, Christ, had to come and give him a push. And then it says there that then after this, I have to go and fight with the king, the prince of Greece. And then the king of Rome. And then the king of Germany. The king of the United States, the prince. Each kingdom has a prince. And those princes are demons. And God tries to fight against those demons to get his prophecy being fulfilled. Very interesting. And so today there is a tremendous struggle also for the mind of our president. Will he go the right direction? Will he not go the right direction? And so here you find in the introduction of the great controversy among the nations. Here is the Persian kingdom. Here is a, the first prophecy here of Daniel 11, verse 2. And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by this strength, his strength through all his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So what do we have here? You have four kings. And the last one is the richest. And what are the four kings that succeed Cyrus? First, Cyrus' son, Cambyses. 
then Smerdis, the usurper, then Darius, Hystaspes, and finally Xerxes, the richest king. In fact, Herodotus writes, the Greek historian writes about Xerxes. He came with an army of five million against Greece. It's incredible. So the next kingdom then is the kingdom of Greece. The next prophecy is Daniel 11, verse 3. And a mighty king shall stand up, that rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. Who is this mighty king? Alexander the Great. And here you find his kingdom, all around the eastern part of the Mediterranean. And then the angel fights with Alexander. Prophecy of chapter 4, chapter 11, verse 4. And when he, Alexander, shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken. And you can see here he's, he's on his deathbed. He's dying at the age of 32 because of an overdose of intoxicating alcohol. And he shall be divided, this kingdom, towards four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, so none of his offsprings rules, not according to his dominion which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up, even for others be, beside those. There he dies. Alexander's kingdom was divided into four parts, ruled by four of his generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And you know, this will be extremely important if you're giving Bible studies, because none of the other Christians really deal with prophecy. And you can show with amazing accuracy how God controls the nations. And here, it took me a long while when I went to Asia Minor, to Turkey. I went to museum, to museum, to museum, looking for coins, because coins have the picture of the kings. And here they found them all. And each one of those, Cassander, Lysimachus, Lucas, and Ptolemy, are represented by those coins. They are very rare. It's, it's parallel events are connected with the four heads of the leper and the four horns of Daniel 8. You see here how beautifully it explains? Each one step by step by step. Now, the prophecy deals now exclusively to the king of the north and the king of the south. So why is this? And unless you understand an Israel-centered view of prophecy, you don't get the message. Principles of interpretation. The focus of the prophecy, the whole of Daniel 11, is God's people. Now, some people say, oh, yeah, you know, the final crisis is between the papacy and the Islam. Is it? What about God's people? Should they not be involved in the final crisis? Between the remnant and the papacy? You see? So unless you understand the history and the principles of interpretation, you get lost. 
And so here then, Israel-centered view of prophecy. Before the end of the 490 years of Daniel 9, the locations of the king of the north and the south are situated north and south to the geography of little Israel. After 34 AD, the focus is on the spiritual Israel with its spiritual and global universal perspective. You see, so you have, looking at the Old Testament, every place, literal, geographical. But when you come to the other side of the cross, the literalness disappears. And unless you understand this, you have a lot of speculation. And you look to the Middle East. You look at A, Edom, Moab, you know, and, and, and Jordan, and all those king, king, kingdoms. No. The principal interpretation is now, if you go to spiritual Israel, then all the other ones had also spiritual dimensions. Here it is. Cassander occupies Greece situated in the west of Palestine. Lysimachus had Thrace and Asia Minor in the north. Seleucus had Syria and Babylon in the east. And Ptolemy had Egypt in the south. And when Seleucus in the north defeated Lysimachus, he occupied the north and became the king of the north. So the origin of the conflict between the kings of the north and the south. King of the north... A conflict develops between Ptolemy, the king of the south, and Seleucus, the king of the north, that caught God's people in the middle. This is all the way God's people. So here is God's people. Everything above it is the north. Everything below it is the south. And then this struggle goes on. Here is the conflict. This conflict in Daniel 11 described the suffering of God's people in the great controversy till the time of the end. See? Keep in mind. All the time, the great controversy. So, the next verse, verse 5, gives a prophecy about the king of the south. It says, and the king of the south shall be strong. And this is Ptolemy Soter. And here you have a statue of him. He's the first king of the south. And he fights with the king of the north. It's one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him. So the king of the north becomes stronger than the king of the south. Here is the king of the north, Seleucus Nicator, one of Alexander's princes. And so the battle went on and on and on. And finally, the king of the south and the north decided, let's have peace. Let's have an alliance, a treaty, so that we don't need to kill our own people. Now, keep in mind, this is all a part of the Greek Empire. Today, you call it the Hellenistic Empire. Because both generals are from Greek descent. Both colonies are from Greek descent. So it is still a struggle in the Greek Empire. Prophecy of Daniel 11, verse 6. And in the end of years, they, the king of the north and the south, and king of the south, shall join themselves together. <laughs> For the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement 
<coughs> but she shall not retain the power of the arms, neither shall they stand, nor his arm. But she shall be given up, and they shall brought her, and he beget her, and he shall be strengthened in these times. So what happened? There's a marriage now between North and South. Ptolemyus Philadelphus, the second king of Egypt, and Antiochus Theos, the third king of Assyria. And they then make an alliance. An alliance is good as long as both parties are alive. But sooner or later, okay, and for this marriage alliance, he has to divorce his wife, Laodice. And he gives his daughter Bernice. Bernice. But then Ptolemy dies. And that affects the alliance. And that's the end. And so what happened then? He brings back his wife, Laodice. And of course, time of revenge. His wife says, this is time of revenge. He divorced him, I'll take care of him. Laodice poisoned her husband. And not only that, she murders Bernice, her sons and attendants. The Bible says, she shall be given up and they that brought her. See, exactly the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel. The next couple of verses, Egypt's war of revenge on Syria. So it's go back and forth. But out of a branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north and shall deal against them and shall prevail. So success for Egypt. See, I used a, a color code. Egypt is purple, and Syria here is yellow. <coughs> and shall also carry their captives into Egypt, their gods, their princes, with the precious vessels of silver, of gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. And so the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and return to his own hand, land. <coughs> so then the war begins, and now it is a time of revenge for Egypt. Here is the king of the south. It is Ptolemy. Euergetes, the brother of the murdered Bernice. And he fight then against Seleucus, Kalinikis, that was the son of Laodice. And Ptolemy with a large army attacks Seleucus and captures the idols. Then the prophecy says, but his son shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great fortresses. And one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through, and then 
shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. And so here the king of the south against the king of the north. And the king of the north has then two sons, Seleucus, Serraunus, and Antiochus the Great. Both attacked Egypt, but are not successful. And the king of the south shall be moved with color, with anger, and shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north. And he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. And so Ptolemy, Philopater, succeeds his father Ptolemy Euergetes in the kingdom of Egypt. And in the north, Antiochus the Great had succeeded his brother Seleucus and the government of Syria. In the battle of Raphia, Ptolemy IV inflicted on Antiochus a major defeat. So they're going then, Egypt's attack on God's people. And when he, Ptolemy IV, has taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up and he shall cast down many ten thousands, but he shall not be strengthened by it. So after his successes, Ptolemy's fourth heart was lifted up and he began to severely persecute the Jews. And why did he do it? Because the Jews refused him to enter the most holy place of the sanctuary. He was so bold, he wanted to do this. But the Jews prevented this and he got so angry that the major persecution for God's people erupted. And so in, Alexander, in Alexandria, the ta in major town occupied by the Jews in Egypt, by the Jews, between 40,000 and 60,000 Jews were killed. A major massacre. So again, in the great controversy, you know, God's people suffer. Then Syria began the campaign against Egypt. Verse 13. For the king of the north shall return, and he shall forth a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. So after Ptolemy IV's death, he was succeeded by his four or five-year-old son Ptolemy IV, the fifth Epiphanes. And now Antiochus the Great took the opportunity, raising a large army, defeating the infant king. He says, no problem, we'll kill him, and I take possession of Egypt. Here is the infant king, another coin. Here, and Antiochus the Great. Rome now enters the prophecy, because when the king of the north in, with, with full power wanted to enter to Egypt, Rome prevented this. And so in Daniel 4, 4, 11, verse 14 to 16, we see the transition from the Syrian king of the north to the Roman kingdom. In verse 14, Rome enters the prophecies, prophetic sphere of Israel. And in verse 16, the power of Syria is transferred to Rome. After it conquered Syria, and from then on, Rome takes over the role of the king of the north. You see? So after the king of the north of Syria is defeated, Rome takes place. 
takes its place. Now is the war against Egypt and Rome's interference. And in those times, there shall many stand up against the kings of the south. Also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish division, but they shall fall. <coughs> See, because you have only an infant king, now all the enemies of Egypt come together and wanted to eliminate him. So let's now see here. Antiochus the Great Bay and his ally Philip, the fifth king of Macedon, and others planned an attack on the infant king Ptolemy the fifth to divide Egypt. But the Romans interfered with these schemes, and in the end they all fell. So here is it talk about the, the, the robbers of God's people. Now what is that, the robbers of God's people? The robbers of God's people are, historians have identified it as the Romans. The Romans are called the robbers of thy people, or literally the breakers of thy people, or those who act violently against thy people. The Romans robbed little Israel of its independence in 63 BC and destroyed the temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Next, the Roman Empire persecuted spiritual Israel for many centuries and thus they established the vision of the role of the prophecy. See? So both literal Israel and spiritual Israel were blasted by the Romans. And so they are the robbers of thy people, the breakers of thy people, and those who acted violently against thy people. Now Syria attacks Egypt. At this time Rome is not yet, Rome is in the process of becoming the king of the north, but it is not yet full. And so the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount and take the most fenced cities and the armies of the south shall not withstand neither is chosen people neither shall there be any strength any strength to withstand and so here then Antiochus the Great was quite successful in his second campaign against Egypt until the Romans again stopped him Rome's interference in the affairs of Egypt avoided the division of Egypt. The great controversy with Rome. Prophecy of Daniel 11:16. But he that comes against him, that is Rome, shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land, which by his hands shall be consumed. <coughs> so Palestine here before Christ is called the glorious land, the land where God's people lived, the literal lands. Now Rome becomes the king of the north. 
from verse 16 onward. <coughs> and from verse 16 to 29, you have pagan Rome. From 30 to 45, it is papal Rome. Still all the time Rome, but here you see a shift. And if you don't understand this, then you lost the rest. Gradually, the Roman Empire extended its influence into Eastern Mediterranean until it fully dominated the Seleucid Kingdom. <coughs> and made Syria a Roman province in 65 BC. And when that was accomplished, the Roman Empire had replaced this Syria as the king of the north, you see? So not until Syria then became a Roman province, Rome was not the king of the north. But now, Rome is in control, and it becomes the king of the north. And here you see Rome's major conquest in prophecy. In 146 BC, Rome makes Macedonia a Roman province. In 65 BC, Rome makes Syria a Roman province. And in 63, the Romans made Judea, the glorious land, a Roman province. So now it is all part of Rome. So you can see here now that the only part of Greece that is still left behind is Egypt. And that is then the last attack and then Greece is gone. So here you see the Rome's conquest of Egypt. <coughs> and he also sets his pace to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and the upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of woman, corrupting her, but she shall not stand on his side, neither be for him. So, what is now taking place in the scene of the military? The conquest of Egypt by Julius Caesar was achieved with the vital support of Antipater and his army of Jews, the upright ones. When Caesar invaded Egypt <coughs> with a small army, he was in danger to be defeated. And so he called upon the Jews, and the Jewish army came and helped Caesar. <coughs> Cleopatra, the daughter of woman, was Julius Caesar's mistress. The last representative of the Ptolemaic dynasty, Cleopatra, attempted to perpetuate the Greek dynasty through an immoral relationship with Julius. And Julius corrupted her, and she had a son by him. Due to Caesar's untimely assassination, she shall not stand on his side, neither for him. Rome's conquest of the Pharnaces. After this, he shall turn, and that is Julius Caesar, his face unto the isles, and shall take many, but the prince of, for his own behalf <coughs> shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease 
without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. Now Caesar's war with the king of Cimmerian, Bosporus, drew him away from Egypt. But, it, the text says, but a prince of his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Can be identified as Mark Antony. And Mark Antony would, in Rome, while Caesar was outside, Mark Antony would protect Caesar's political interest in Rome while he was away. And due to Caesar's absence from Rome, Antony would defend and cause the Senate's reproach of Caesar to fall upon him. So when the, the Senate made all kinds of decrees against uh, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony took it upon himself to do this. And uh, that is the reproach. Then Julius Caesar finally returns to Rome and is assassinated. Then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. After Caesar's defeated the last remaining fragments of Pompey's supporters, there was a civil war there and Caesar won. He returned to Rome, the fort of his own land. Here he was made perpetual dictator, making Julius Caesar, in fact, absolute ruler over the Roman Empire. And when he was about to receive the title of king, he was assassinated. Thus he suddenly stumbled and fell and was not found. Now why did they kill Julius Caesar? Before that it was a republic. Before that it was a king. They eliminated the kingdom and they established a democratic republic. But Caesar was such a personality. He won many battles. Thousands of battles. And, uh, and so when he came, he was rewarded and he were, they were going to make him king and emperor. And that is what his colleagues didn't like. And so they said, let him kill him. And that was the end. Then the next text here, <coughs> in Daniel 11 verse 20, it says, Then shall stand up in his estate a razor of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But with a few days... Within a few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. Octavianus, later called Caesar Augustus, succeeded his uncle Julius Caesar, who adapted him as his successor. Luke reported that he was a raiser of taxes at the time Christ was born. So here you get Christ coming into the picture. This taxation which embraces all the world, was an event worthy of notice. Augustus reigns in the glory of the kingdom. Why does it say in the glory of the kingdom? At that time, Rome had reached the pinnacle of its greatness and power. In less than 18 years after the taxing, Augustus died, not in anger, not in battle, but peacefully in his bed in 14 AD in the 76 years. Then the next successor is Tiberius. And it says here, in his estate, in his place, shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor 
of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. This is Tiberius. Caesar Augustus was succeeded by Tiberius. The first part of his reign was characterized by prudence and ability, but later part of his rule were marred by dissimulation, tyranny, hypocrisy, debauchery, and uninterrupted intoxication, as he recorded in his, by his contemporaries. So he really became very vile. Then he died, verse 22, and with the arms of his flood shall they be overflown from before him, and he shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. So what is this text? What is this prophecy? Uh, some translated the text, and the arms of the overflower shall be overflown before him, and he shall be broken. This expression indicates revolution and violence. Indeed, Emperor Tiberius suffered a violent death in his 78th year and was universally despised. It was during the reign of Tiberius that the Prince of the Covenant, who was Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Prince, who was to confirm the covenant one week with his people, this resulted in the violent crucifixion death of Jesus Christ in Daniel 9. Just like the Roman emperor died a violent death, so Christ. In a similar way, in 31 AD, Jesus Christ, the Prince of the Covenant, ended his life. He was to be cut off through the violent death during the reign of Tiberius. His death terminated the earthly sanctuary services. He shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, remember? He gave his life as the Lamb of God, and he gave... And he began his high priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary for God's people. Now, here comes a controversial thing here about this text in verse 23. And after the leak was made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with the small people. Uh, this refers to the Roman-Jewish alliance that was before the death of Christ in 161 BC. Now, people have argued and said, you know, why not continue the sequence? And the next verse goes beyond Jesus Christ. And call, why not a continual development? You cannot go back again 150 years. If that is so, what about... Revelation 13. In verse 3, you have the deadly wound. And then it goes back and describes the 42 months. You see, so there is, there is nothing strange. But why is this so important? The fulfillment of this prophecy. <clears throat> now the prophecy points out the turning point in Jewish-Roman relationships as a result of a leak 
the Jews had made earlier in 161 BC. This league promised mutual assistance with Rome to escape persecution by the Seleucid king, the Greek kings. You see, all the wars, north and south, resulted in a terrible persecution of the Jews. And you may have heard Antiochus Epiphanes, and uh, he stopped the Sabbath and killed many, many Jews. And so under those persecutions, the Jews looked for help. And they called specially on Rome to help them. And they had a league, a decree, and that's what the Bible says. <coughs> Here is the league. <coughs> the decree of the Senate concerning a league of assistance and friendship with the nation of the Jews. It shall not be lawful of any that are subject to the Romans to make war with the nation of the Jews. And if any attack be made upon the Jews, the Romans shall assist them as far as they are able to. See, exactly as prophecy has fulfilled. And here is Josephus, who says here, this decree, Josephus says, <coughs> was the first league that the Romans made with the Jews. Now, Rome's unique strategy of conquest. <coughs> Prior to Joe, Rome, the expansion of the kingdom was through wars. Rome, however, expanded the territory with peaceable means. Rulers would leave their legacy, their provinces or kingdoms, to the Romans. In return, they were treated with kindness, leniences, and received protection under the umbrella of Rome. So that is how he caught piece after piece and country after country. Now you get the final battle of the king of the north and the king of the south between Greece and Rome. The prophecy of Daniel 11 verse 25. And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, that is the king of the north, <coughs> with a great army. But the king of the south shall be stirred up in battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. So here is the final battle for the world between the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the north has a great army, the king of the south a very great and mighty army. Here is the decisive battle between Rome and the Greek Ptolemaic dynasty. Daniel 11 verse 25 to 27 deals with the final conflict between Rome, the king of the north, with 80,000 soldiers, and the Greek Ptolemaic kingdom as the king of the south with 125,000 soldiers. The war ended the last aspiration of the Greek Ptolemaic dynasty as a world power. Instead of the battle of Actium, made Rome the undisputed ruler of the then-known civilized world. So that is the elimination of the Greek Empire. The date 31 is the beginning of a prophetic time in verse 24. This time marks the beginning of Rome's supremacy with all governmental directives issuing from the city of Rome. That time period ended 360 years you know, time is 360 years, after 31, which began 
which is in 330 AD, when Constantine removed the government from Rome to Constantinople. You have to take 31 BC plus 360, and you get 330 AD. <coughs> what was the cause of the defeat of the King of the South? This text reveals the event at the Battle of Actium and affirms that led, the aftermath that led to the overthrow of the Ptolemaic dynasty under Mark Antony and Cleopatra and their suicides. The prophecy of Daniel 11 verse 23. Yes, they that feed of the portion of the kings of his meat shall destroy him and his army shall overflow and many shall fall down slain. The causes of the defeat of Mark Antony, because Mark Antony was a Roman, he joined the Greek cause, so he deserted. But as a result, many of his soldiers were disgruntled and they deserted, <coughs> deserted him. And those were fed with a portion of his meat. And the end of the forces surrendered to Caesar, his forces surrendered to Caesar in despair, and Antony took his own life. What was the character of those two kings? Prophecy of Daniel 11:27. And both of those kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one another's table, and shall not prosper, for yet the end shall be at a time appointed. <coughs> and this text shows the character of the king of the north and the king of the south. Here are insights about the character of these rulers before the Battle of Actium. Mark Antony and Caesar were formerly in alliance. Yet under the cover of friendship, they were both aspiring and intriguing for universal dimension, dominion. <coughs> then the exploits of the King of the North. The prophecy says here in Daniel eleven twenty-eight: 28, Then shall he return to his land with great he, is then Rome, and that is Caesar Augustus, shall return to his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the Holy Covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own hand. Now, after the elimination of the King of the South, the text brings out that the exploits of the King of the North and his two triumphal return to Rome. The first return was after Rome's conquest of Egypt, when he took all the riches to Rome. Then, the second return took place after Rome's exposition against Judea and Jerusalem. Remember, the Holy Covenant refers to the covenant that God has maintained with his people. From this time on, Jews as well as Christians fell victim to the Roman persecutions that lasted for centuries. <coughs> so then you get the re relocation of the capital of the Roman Empire. <coughs> the move of the capital led to a demoralization and ruin, leading to the downfall of the Western Empire. Soon the barbarian tribes began their invasions till the imperial power of the West expired in AD 476. That was the end of the Western 
Roman Empire. But the East continued. And so this then ends our first part, our second part, where we deal with Rome and the papacy. So now we have dealt with Persia, Greece, and pagan Rome. This afternoon, we get especially papal Rome and all its shenanigans and what it did to God's people. And we come right down today what the papacy is doing today in its offensive against God's people and how it finally will end. And so this is then uh, the first part. It is a study, and some of you may have been overwhelmed by the facts and whatever. If you want to have a good book also on this, is by Dr. C. Mervyn Maxwell and also by my son-in-law, Norman McNulty, who just uh, published a book by uh, Remnant Publications, and that is uh, Daniel, the prophecies of Daniel today. And that is, uh, and that gives also, he follows very similar as I have explained this to you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.